0: Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui billens and this is the inaugural episode of season two. Right now, I'm in Seattle, where we are on lockdown due to the COVID-19 crisis, and uh, you might notice that the quality of the recordings in season two are going to be a little bit different than season one, due to myself and many of the Field Notes guests not having access to their usual recording setups. But never mind, we'll work with what we've got, and I hope everyone listening is safe and healthy and uh, safely isolating. And yeah, we're going to get through this together. Today's interview is with Jeff Good, who is someone I've wanted to have on Field Notes for quite a while now. He has a PhD from UC Berkeley, and he is now a professor and chair of the Department of Linguistics at the University of Buffalo in New York. Jeff is a typologist, and his research mostly focuses on lesser documented bantoid languages in the Lower Fungum region of northwest Cameroon. He has also done work on Sarah Macon, an Atlantic Creole. If you're interested in hearing more about Creoles, you can check out season one, episode four, with Hugo Cardoso. Today's chat mostly focused on Jeff's work in Cameroon and one thing that I really appreciated is his collaborative approach to working with local scholars and how he's used his access and his privilege to benefit both local and junior scholars. Another thing that really stood out to me is his pragmatic approach to the practicalities of fieldwork, whether that's planning your fieldwork around your family and home life or thinking about the weather and the climate of your field site. And one thing that he said that really stuck with me is uh, that all of us, the researchers and the speakers, were all humans. So the project that you're working on, the research, it really needs to work for everyone. So on that note, let's get to the interview. Okay, so thank you so much for coming on to Field Notes, Jeff. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for the invitation. Um, It seems like just a great idea to provide this kind of forum, especially maybe for junior scholars who are just starting out. But I'm sure even all of us can learn from each other. Every time I meet a field worker, we're always exchanging little tips and things. So this seems like a a great forum for that.
0: Yeah, thanks. Definitely. That's kind of the whole idea is just to share experiences and get an idea about what other people are doing and what we can learn from each other. So to start, can you tell us a bit about how you got started in field linguistics?
1: Yeah, sure. This is something I've discussed a lot, I think, with younger linguists who are thinking about doing fieldwork, in part because I think my trajectory was maybe more typical when I started like 20 years ago than it is today. When I was first coming into the field, there wasn't nearly as much attention on endangered languages as there is now. Um, It was something that people were sort of talking about, but you didn't get a lot of people who were coming into graduate programs specifically interested in endangered languages. Um, I can think of one someone, one member of my PhD program who started a few years before me like that, and she said she actually had to explain to people in her early years that she worked on endangered languages and, and what that meant. So I think these days, uh, you see a lot of students who say, I want to do a PhD, I want to do language documentation, I want to work on an understudied language. I came in with more, uh, I guess, what you might call traditional structural interests, really interested in com- comparing different related languages to see what kind of grammatical insights you might derive from that, and uh, just doing morphological, phonological, syntactic analysis. And what happened is, in large part because I started working with Larry Hyman, I became exposed to uh, just Bantu languages and comparative Bantu linguistics, uh, became quite interested in that. I started to do some what you'd call consultant work, but not really field work. First, I just discovered I really enjoyed working with speakers and just getting to know their language, but I was doing that in a university setting or maybe going to their home in a U.S. urban setting. And I really enjoyed that, but I never really had aspirations to kind of undertake the sort of long-term field trip in a location far from home that is very typical today. So I had this comparative Bantu interest, was doing work, you know, historical reconstruction and also doing more sort of synchronic analytical work on um, sort of comparative Bantu data. One year when I was still a graduate student um, at UC Berkeley, we had the opportunity to work with a speaker of a Nigerian language called Legbo that was or is somewhat distantly related to Bantu languages. And uh, she was the consultant for a field methods class that I attended, and I really enjoyed working with her and getting to see how what that language looked like. And I was really fascinated by the ways that it had some correspondence to better known Bantu grammar, like a language like Swahili or something like that, but it had also gone in a very different morphological direction in certain ways. And so it wasn't as agglutinative, but it had some morphology. And then just a little bit to its west, you'd find languages that were related with almost no morphology. And I realized that the languages I was really interested in were those that had this kind of intermediate morphological type, not the sort of clean agglutinative language or a more prototypical isolating language, but they had this kind of really just interesting intermediate morphology, right? So I'm giving all this background because my Interest, even where I work today in Cameroon, was very much driven by these like concerns of grammar. So I really came at this from this pathway. And then around sort of 2004 or so, I had the opportunity to take on a postdoctoral fellowship in Leipzig at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, where uh, there was a lot of fieldwork going on. And when I put in my kind of application, I said, oh, if I had the postdoc, I'd be excited to use the opportunity to do real fieldwork, around the Cameroon-Nigeria border area, because I realized linguistically that's where I wanted to work. And then when I was given the postdoc, I actually suddenly had to do it. And I was actually really nervous about it, because I'm not, a I don't think of myself as a particularly adventurous person. I did not have this sort of desire to go to Africa and see the cultures and all these things. Um, since then, it's really changed. I mean, maybe I can talk about that later. But my sort of way I interact and understand the way I do linguistics has really been deeply impacted by going to the field, but I was really just kind of nervous about it. But the thing about being at the Max Planck Institute at that time was that there was absolutely no funding barrier whatsoever to doing the field work. Once I had the fellowship, I could email Bernard Comrie, who just was so willing and supportive of people to do exploratory projects and find new languages to work on and say, I kind of I should dig up this email. I I can't find it again, where I just sent him a very rough budget. I didn't know what language I was going to work on. I just knew I was going to go to this part of Cameroon and find a language. There were, you know, and he just trusted me to do that. Said I need, I don't know, four or five thousand euros. I estimated very rough budget. Two days later, I get an email or maybe one day saying approved. And I was like, uh oh, I got to do this now. Right. But basically all the barriers were lifted. Right. And so suddenly I, I could go and do it. So. I think that's the beginning, right? So what started really came from this this very different path than I think is typical today.
0: Yeah, I think it's really changed a lot, hasn't it? Because now, you know, there's like funding alone is such a big barrier.
1: Yeah, things have, although I will say that if you were to look at my projects, you know, today and I've probably had haven't added the number up recently, maybe like a million dollars in NSF funding, right, to do this. This is um this is U.S. money, which means there's like a big university tax that gets taken out. So let's say 750000 of real money, which is a lot of money. That wouldn't have been possible without that first investment that Bernard Comrie was willing to make for me to do the pilot work. And what I see the real gap in funding is just those few thousand dollars, maybe a few thousand euros or a few thousand pounds that are needed to let a promising student go out and just establish their field site. And what I've seen as a Ph.D. supervisor now so that really impacts the students who don't have um, like relatively wealthy parents or don't have someone who can just give them that like starter loan. And so I, I really feel like the biggest, to me, one of the biggest gaps in funding now is this, you seem good, you know, don't, don't have a project yet, we're not going to give you $10,000 or pounds or euros, but we'll give you 3000 and you find the rest, you'll find another thousand or two and prove yourself, come back and then you can go ahead and do it. So I was incredibly fortunate not to have to worry about that first trip. And then once I could establish myself, find the field site, I could leverage that to to get larger scale external grant.
0: Can we shift real quick? So you also teach language documentation at University of Buffalo now, like you've mentioned. How is it at University of Buffalo? Do you have a, a consultant come in? How do you do field work and field methods?
1: Yeah, so the way we've done it, so there's a, there's an old field methods class that's been around forever, at the university, right? So like a lot of departments, right? Who knows, 20, 30 years. And we still have that class. It gets run maybe every other year or so just because uh, we don't have enough PhD students. I mean, just because of funding constraints, right? So. If you wait a couple of years, you get a good group. So we just don't quite have enough people doing it every year. Also because traditionally that was our main methods course and now a lot of students also specialize in quantitative methods as the field has shifted. So not as many are going into, into field methods, but we still run that course. I still think it's an important course in the traditional format and I'll kind of get to why. But then also twice and every, I'd like to do this again in a few years, I've run a separate seminar that focuses on language documentation itself as we understand it today in the sense of the endangered language documentation program and uh, the you know the the sort of contemporary sense. The field methods course I should say is a one year course so it's two semesters you have a really a, a long time to work with someone. The seminar has been a, a one semester seminar that's not formalized but has been probably the most, I'd say, popular seminar I've taught. Students really, really have enjoyed it. Um, and I think there's there's sort of two things going on, and I, I don't quite know how they're resolving it, I think, say, at Hawaii, which probably has one of the most well-developed language documentation curricula. I don't know how they've resolved it at SOAS, where there's a tremendous amount of linguistic research that relies on data collected by interaction of one linguist with one consultant. Now, it could be that that consultant produced a story and then you're analyzing it afterwards. It could be that someone else recorded the story or you have a natural conversation, but then you're sitting in a room with one person. So even those who do documentation are still relying on this, I think, one-on-one interaction, right? I think it's central to the process. And on the one hand, I think students who want to do real field work need a lot of practice with that. And it's really great to give them an experience to practice In their university setting when they're not dealing with homesickness and they're not dealing with the power going out and they're not dealing with all of the other complications that arise when you're traveling far away so they can kind of learn who they are how they interact with another person well to get linguistic data they can probe their strengths and weaknesses so that when they get to the field they kind of have that part they've practiced that part And they can hopefully still succeed in that part with all of the other things they have to do in the actual field. I think it's also the case that I really like a lot of the students who take that class aren't ever planning to do language documentation at Buffalo, but they really like the idea of understanding how to work with a consultant. And I think, what do I want them to know? I want them to understand the difficulty and the fragility of that process of getting data from a speaker, both so that just so that they have a better sense of Like when they open a grammar, because maybe they're doing typology, they understand all of the details, all of the sort of problematic steps along the way to produce that grammar. Because so many linguists are using the products, the high-level analytical products of documentation. I want them to understand intuitively the messiness of that process. So I think that's just really good for them to understand how the field collects data of that kind. So I think there's still a space for that class. And we do some documentation light stuff. Okay, we have to record... The things on audio or video, and they have to do some metadata, and they're probably going to see a lawn and do some time aligned transcription. But I don't push that as hard. And instead, I push the use this as a practice run for working with a consultant and understanding that. Then there's the seminar where we really try to look at language documentation kind of as a sub discipline. And there, there's a set of readings across things like interaction with the community, ethical interaction, you know, how to be ethical. Uh, We go a lot more into particular choices of equipment, how you would manage metadata in the field, ethics review board issues, whatever those happen to be in, in, in whatever country someone's research is sort of legally based. I could go through, I have a, I can't see it in my mind. I have a topical bibliography where we kind of go through these different topics. And so we discuss those conceptually. And then what I do in that course, the sort of one of the core bits of the, what you call assessed work the output is students are supposed to produce a draft grant application. So we actually, I structure the themes. Okay. So today you have to write your community section of the grant application. Now you're going to write your documentary output section. Now you're going to talk about, you know, work plans. So we try to sort of layer in these thematic topics. And there I actually see the applied work as how do you get that grant? How do you design the... I mean, it's not just about the grant, but designing the project. How do you actually design a real-world fieldwork project? I've even had some students in who've attended that class who aren't interested in endangered languages, but let's say sociolinguistic documentation of American English varieties. And they actually share a lot of those same logistical issues. So I just feel like it's really... I don't want to lose the all of the value you get from practice with a consultant in your university setting... But then there's also this, this whole list of logistical aspects of how you manage a documentation project, which is where the seminar is focused. The nice thing is the students who take that class really want to know that stuff. Those who are in field methods may just want to understand how you collect primary data um, in the sort of in this one-on-one fashion.
0: It's so interesting to see how other universities do like run their field methods courses um like compared to SOAS and University of Hawaii and then I didn't even really have a field methods class when I did my undergrad uh, at Fresno State so the first time I I ever sat down with a consultant was in uh was in London at SOAS you, you think like, oh, okay, we're just going to sit in this room and have a chat and do some recordings. And of course, the first time you do it, everything goes wrong. Your, record- your recorder doesn't work. You forgot the batteries. It's just a nightmare. And that's in like a safe environment.
1: Yeah, exactly. But isn't it good to practice that? That's what I think, in the safe environment, because there'll be a new nightmare. Who knows what it is? Completely. And then at least you're like, okay, I've done this part before, right? I know what to do when yeah. this happens. I think one reason why it's different here is I think that other faculty who work on students with language documentation probably have found it valuable that I've offered this seminar and other faculty could offer it. It just hasn't quite happened. But this is a department that does a lot of field work and documentation, but we have a lot of students doing other things. And so we're not a narrow document, like we don't have a degree in documentation, but all faculty value the field methods class. And a lot of them want their students to have that experience. And so what we want to do is set up a track that says, well, what do you do with someone who's really going to be a psycholinguist working on English, but still wants to know this stuff? What's the right experience for them? I don't think it's all that helpful for them to know, you know, like MD versus OLAC metadata. Is that really what we want them to know? Probably not. We want them to understand um, how much work's involved and have some rough sense of the nature of the work. And so then we can sort of divide up the curriculum across those who are really going to do this against those who just want to understand what it's like.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So going back to your own field work, um, can you talk a little bit about the community that you've, or the communities that you've worked with in Cameroon?
1: Yeah, so um, I want to start by saying that we're in this, just uh, in this very unfortunate moment where there's some communities who I've gotten to know and I've worked with um, who have been really tragically impacted by, a kind of civil war it's not getting a lot of uh, attention in the um, western press you know every few months an article pops up but what happened is like so many things the conflict started it got some articles and attention and now it's just in its long phase of uh, instability and imbalance in part of Cameroon it's the so-called um, anglophone part so if you saw an article in the western press or even the Cameroonian press they're going to talk about you know, uh, Anglophone separatism against the, the Francophone portion of Cameroon. Cameroon had been a German colony before World War I. It got divided partly between the UK and France. And then in a kind of a messy political process, uh, it was sort of reunified a bit, but there was always a lot of tension. The so-called Anglophone part, which had been under UK uh, political authority, kind of connected to Nigeria, Uh, Wasn't quite happy about being merged back with the francophone part. Um, I don't have a full mastery of all that history But there's a there's a history there one problem there that I think will be very clear to listeners of this podcast is This anglophone francophone divide is just not a great way of seeing it If you realize there's 250 local languages of Cameroon This is not Canada where really the francophones are primarily francophones and the anglophones are primarily anglophones plus various other languages this is anglophone and francophone as a shorthand for a whole cluster of other identity concepts and work going on. And so um, the anglo most, a lot of the anglophone parts are very unsafe to to work in. And especially my field sort of so-called field site, quote unquote, of uh, lower Fungom. And that's a very dangerous area now because while the unrest had originally been in the cities, it's now shifted to like, as the um, separatists got pushed out of the cities, they fled to more remote areas and, What made Lower Fungom such an interesting field site was that there was all this linguistic diversity there. It was a little bit sort of off the beaten path socioeconomically. That's also made it an area where the separatists have sort of fled to. So it's a very um, unsteady space. So I just want to make that clear. So a lot of what I'm saying really reflects the situation of two or three years ago. We don't really even know what the situation is on the ground right now. And we've been working lately with internally displaced people in safe parts of the country. And I'll, I'll talk about that as well uh, and how we're trying to manage that. But the communities, um, what happened is, so if you remember from the beginning, I kind of said, you know, I didn't go with this desire to see some quote unquote exotic place, right? Obviously, it's not exotic to the people who live there, but I didn't have this. I, I have to go and, and see the, the this this location. I really knew I wanted to work in the northwest region of cameroon because lots of languages it was at the time a very stable area good it was known to be a good place to do work lots of work needed to be done it's also somewhat higher in elevation and i'll just be honest i don't work well in high humidity environments i would just not function well so it gets hot there but it's kind of like i don't know los angeles hot rather than houston hot or something i hope that i hope that means something to all the listeners but it's not very humid and and Sort of pleasant, so I thought, okay, this is good. Lots of work to be done, and I could—I think I could manage here. I could be there for a while and 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 do some work. I when I first got to Cameroon, I went to um, the sort of SIL headquarters there. SIL is very large and active and well liked in Cameroon. So, and talked to some of the people working there, and they had their map of the northwest province of Cameroon with all the languages, and then well, they had a map of Cameroon. And then the map of Cameroon needed an inset for the northwest province because the language density was so high. So in order to capture it, I thought, okay, that's neat. That's a good place to go. Lots of languages. That's the right place to go. And then inside of the this inset, there was another region that needed an inset. So it was the inset of the inset. So as you can see, I'm really doing this just by looking at documents. I'm not really like, I don't know what's happening in reality. Um, But I thought, hey, there's an inset of an inset. I've always loved maps. I've always liked to look at maps, language maps, political maps, anything from when I was just, you know, five or six years old. And so I just have this attraction. I want to go to the inset of the inset. That's really kind of what struck me. At the same time, SIL is very active in that area, but because it's the inset of the inset, so many small languages put together, it had not been a priority area for them because they're choosing the higher population languages first for translation priorities. So there's this great complementarity. I'm coming from this endangered language sort of, I guess, movement or whatever you want to call it uh, or paradigm that says I should go for the most endangered languages, the ones that are getting the least attention. SIL is going from this paradigm of we should focus on the ones with the highest population first so i thought this is this is the right they were like they were happy for me to go there um while i do cooperate with them i didn't really want to be linked to any of their projects in any direct way um i don't have any any particular i don't have any religious affiliation myself and i didn't really care to so i'm happy to work with them and exchange information but i didn't want i I like the idea of being sort of distant and they like the idea of someone else looking at these groups Um, and so um, you know took a trip but went to this area that had by SIL's count at the time about five or six languages in a very compact space Uh, it's about 10 kilometers north-south 10 kilometers east-west this region's called Lower Fungom not a well-known area outside of Cameroon at all not even a well-known area inside of Cameroon I mean you'd have to get very close to it before you find people who know about it Um, And uh, by our current counts, you have seven to nine languages, depending on how you do the count across 13 villages. And I just thought, this is great. There's just so much work that needs to be done and um, sort of no one's doing it. So when you talk about the community, well, on the one hand, you have all of these speaker communities and these language communities. There is a local sense of identity. The people of Lower Fungom call themselves Lower Fungom. They know they are Lower Fungom. So they also recognize that higher level of identity. So we work with them both at that level, also at the level of individual villages. Uh, Each village understands itself to be speaking its own language, even if a linguist would categorize it differently. So we have to really do a lot of stuff at the village level. And so it's sort of a a super community with lots of interesting communities um, kind of underneath it. They're relatively socioeconomically marginalized and poor subsistence farmers, but um, very happy for outside researchers to come in. Uh, we have to deal with the jealousies that come in any context when someone's coming with money and, and other resources. But generally speaking, it's it's quite it's been a place that's been quite quite welcoming.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. I I think you point out something really interesting though when you were talking about humidity and knowing yourself, um, because I also have this issue um, where I do research in Japan in Amami on the Ryukyu Islands. It's very humid, like texas humid in the
1: summertime
0: so i just i've just decided like i will not go do field work in the summer
1: yeah i get that i don't think that this doesn't i come up in the standard curricula right that like we are people right and we're humans and of course the consultant i mean or whatever you want the speakers or the the language users too if you're in a sign language community they're all humans and this has to work for everybody right you got to find a way that works for you i think that the it reminds me too is something that i don't see discussed much but i think it should be a more active part of discussion is aligning these kinds of projects with your own family sort of life cycle right so maybe in your phd period you can be away for a long time and that's okay but then uh, there may be parts of your life where you can't get away and how do you kind of then there may be other parts where you can get away again and, and you can sort of do this travel so how do you kind of um not just in terms of your tolerance of heat or cold or whatever those things are, but also how do you align this with uh, the fact that for most of us, um, our fieldwork cannot be, it can be a very important part of our life, but it's not the only part of our life. And those are very hard things to align. And I don't know how many people I sort of say, hey, you're going to the field again. You know, how's that working out for you? Like, how does your family feel? And they say, oh, my spouse hates it or I had to, you know, or they really don't want me to be like, I don't know how many people I've heard. My own wife doesn't like it when I'm there. And it seems like everyone has this, this tension, right? Like, and especially when you've gotten to know your community, and you feel bad being away for a long time. But then you also have the people at home who worry when you're away or all those other things. So um, it's just, I don't know, something that probably should be talked about more, uh, especially maybe the more senior people should be talking about what they did, right, to, to manage that.
0: Yes, definitely. I'm actually really looking for people to speak more about this because I think it is something that younger scholars are thinking about and oh well how am I going to balance, you know, my family life and my field work and like you you hit the nail on the head once you've connected with a community, you can't just ditch them for five to ten years to have some kids. So how you know, how can you maintain that connection and keep you know, working with them in a collaborative way while maybe you can't physically go to the field or can't go as much.
1: I can say how I um, responded to that myself. I was sort of lucky in some ways, but um, I think if you look at the structure of my current projects, it reflects two things that kind of aligned. I I think I would have gone this way, but I did it sooner because of family balance issues. So uh, there was a time probably seven or eight years ago where for a mix, partly professional, but I'd say more personal family. My children were younger. My wife was having some health issues. And it just wasn't nothing like so serious that life couldn't go on as normal in Buffalo. But stuff that the idea of me being gone for, say, four or five weeks or even three weeks was just going to be really hard on everyone, right? And so it just didn't seem feasible. Uh, I was fortunate at that time to have developed a really strong relationship with Pure Di DiCarlo, who sort of works... Uh, effectively as a co-PI in a lot of the projects I work on. He's been able to travel, so he could be and help manage it. But also, what I'd realized is, you know, at, at that time and still, the Cameroonian linguistic community of the, the scholars, scholarly linguistic community, uh, was uh, quite strong for that part of the world. And also, had itself independently, really, there have been a few linguists who are moving into doing language documentation work themselves. And so um, what I sort of decided to try to do, and I I think I would have done this anyway, but I did it probably three or four years earlier than I was in my mind sort of going through from a pure research perspective, really try to flip the model where the work would go on, but I would try instead of having a grant where I fund one US PhD student to go and do some work for six months and come back and then go back and forth. Can we develop the right training model to get Cameroonian masters and PhD students engaged in the work and get their faculty engaged in the work um, and really basically sort of create this kind of training model in country? Um, and we spent, we're still working on it. It took a long time. I mean, the goodwill was there, the skill set was there, the people were there. Um, and so then it became a, a matter of logistics and management, understanding everyone's academic cultures, how to align things right uh how to get the money there at the right time is a very central problem that has t- took us a long time to work out we're still working on it right um uh but sort of how i managed it was by sort of shifting to this role where essentially a lot of my time is spent managing the project often from afar i haven't had a chance to go back to cameroon for too long now i really want to go back um getting the grants coming in, managing the finances, keeping things together. We'd run workshops where I might go to Cameroon for a short time, or people come to Buffalo, or we've met in Europe, and we just sort of keep the project going that way. I think, on the one hand, I have to say, part of me really just, it's really boring. I mean, like, I did this because I wanted to actually do the work, right? I wanted to be with, in the communities, getting recordings, analyzing them. I enjoyed that part of the work. Um, but on the flip side, what I can say is I can use my own affiliations and my own institutional affiliations to help um, fund very promising, especially junior Cameroonian scholars who otherwise would have, wouldn't have would have that opportunity through their own sort of government funding organization. So when I've spent a few hours trying to get paperwork done to get reimbursements in place, and I'm kind of annoyed by it, I just remember that we actually have really gotten to know just some wonderful, a lot of these just Cameroonian junior linguists who otherwise wouldn't have interacted with in the same way.
0: Yeah, that um, what you just said actually feeds into the next thing I want to talk about, which is how can we decolonize linguistics and make it more collaborative? Um, sounds like you're, you found like a good solution for your own research and for the communities you work with.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's um what's a little different about the way I've operated, and I'm not saying. And other other linguists do this. I've seen other linguists, especially who work in in similar parts of Africa, who do this. But I think that um, usually, or very often, especially like in a North American setting or Australian setting, it's framed as decolonizing at the level of whatever language user community you're working with, right? Um, so speaker community, or if it's sign language, sign you know the the, the user community. And I think that the the structure I have is somewhat different, and it's not that because we're working basically with the local scholarly community, um, and I'll come back to, to that in a second, it's not that we wouldn't want to do the same with the speaker community, but these speaker communities are very marginalized and very poor, and what they need right now, they don't really need dictionaries or language development, they need um, healthcare schools and roads, this is what they what they articulate their needs are before this crisis we were actually trying to give sort of community level compensation to help schools we had projects involved in this but it was uh, the idea of sort of decolonizing the linguistic research at the community level was a little difficult because they're just the communities themselves really had ho- other priorities quite sensibly i think their priorities were all exactly where they they needed to be and occasionally you might if you met someone from those communities who was really linguistically gifted they were probably gifted in all kinds of ways and we really needed by their community to do other things, other higher priority things. So instead, the sort of the site, if you want to use this term decolonization, which is um, certainly not a term I was thinking about when I started graduate school. I mean, you can see my trajectory was very different, but I, I do think about how to do this. The, the site of that was more at the, the kind of university level, which I think is still a good site. And understanding that for good or bad scholars in countries in developing countries are often taking many of their cues about what's important from scholars in the in the developed countries right um, I would say sometimes that makes sense and sometimes it means we're losing really interesting insights that are that would emerge from these other scholars and so now we really try to um I, you'd have to You'd have to interview or or do a podcast with one of the Cameroonians I work with to see if it's been successful. I, who am I to judge this, right? Um, but we really tried hard to have not be a, a purely top down project. I do have to articulate that the funding I have is is contingent on achieving certain outcomes. And I want to make sure the team understands that. But we also try to where possible, you know, let them also propose research subprojects and go in directions that we might not have, um, um otherwise, um, trying to think if I, if I have some, I think, examples, certainly, um, there's much more interested in interest in applied aspects of, uh, linguistics among the Cameroonian linguistics community than most of the sort of theoretical linguistic community in North America. Some of the students have been interested in those domains. If they produce a good research proposal, we'll say, go ahead try that. We can kind of will support that, um, and we've also tried to, you know, bring on local anthropologists and local geographers to try to cr- help create these these spaces of of um, interdisciplinary discourse. Have we been successful in decolonizing? I don't know, but um, I, I do I do really at least try to take seriously the idea that we want the whole team to shape to, to shape the project.
0: I I know you said your equipment isn't very exciting, but I think it's good to illustrate the, you know, the full range. Can uh, can we talk a little bit about the equipment you use?
1: Yeah. So let me think about this on some level. So it, you've already heard the beginning where a lot of my time now is just, I actually have bought a lot of nice equipment. I just haven't used it. I just buy it, get it packaged, get some suitcases. We fill them up. We send them to Cameroon and then they get divided up. And I will say for a project like what we're doing, um, we do sometimes use good equipment that's a little cheaper because we'd rather have more recorders than one nice... Rec- we do often have... We do have at least one nice thing, but also if we want to enable more students to do this work, we need lots of them and we need to know some will break and we need to be... We need to live with that. That's just part of this process. Um, the one piece of equipment that I lent out a while ago, I haven't gotten back. I really do love the the Rota NTG2. If you know that a lot of people like this microphone, but yeah. Um, yeah. if I think about... I just... I like it because it's not very obtrusive when you don't want to do a lapel. It's just a regular shotgun mic, but it just does a great job of getting a really sharp recording of what you want to hear and backgrounding what you don't want to hear, like the roosters making their noise all over the place all the time. And you still hear it, but it doesn't distract you the way it would be with another microphone. Um, so that's just that. I know there are, everyone has their own preferences for microphones, but that's just one I really, I really love. I have my old... Uh, Marantz recorder that I still use sometimes but that's a little outdated obviously I'd be if I was in Cameroon now I'd pick up one of the Zooms we have there and use it but I guess um, I guess it's generally true now that I think through it um, one of the things I've really learned to think about more having and I think a lot of people who have more experience in the field know this is like often the microphone is just much more important than you like think like people want to get the high end audio recorder I really feel like most of them are just fine now oh, you could tweak this setting or that setting. But if you don't have a good mic setup, if you don't have the best microphone set up for your setting, um, that's a problem. So that's really where I thought. And I've, I haven't used them, but I would love to get these nice wireless lapel mic systems for people doing walks and all of these kinds of things. Video, everyone does video now and should be doing video now as much as possible, right? That's a big shift maybe in the last eight years or so. And I have to say, I haven't done as much of the on-the-ground fieldwork work since then, so I can say what we're what we've been trying to do. Um, we have video cameras. I think for the Cameroonian uh, team, we were using Zoom Q8s because it just it was a good sweet spot of price and recording quality. We had some nicer cameras, but a lot of what we're thinking is, you know, do we want one really high quality professional piece, or do we want for the same price five? good pieces of equipment right and and the current project we will we will veer towards rather have five perfectly good pieces of equipment than one really nice piece of equipment. more people can use it more work gets done. Um, one thing because we're working with geographers and trying to look at like language and space relationships, um, we also have some GPS devices that pick things up. those are just the most important thing there is they should run a long time on batteries, right you know because power is an issue. There is a camera, and we haven't had a chance to use it much yet, largely because of this crisis, called the Garmin Verb, V I R B. And it's kind of like a GoPro. Uh, I learned about it from Nicholas Burenholt, who who does a lot of interesting sort of walking spatial analysis of, of, of language um, himself. And um, the nice thing about the Garmin Verb in comparison to the GoPro is that. There are GoPros that will record location data, GPS data, but apparently, I haven't tried it myself, the format is not like the standard format, whereas the Garmin Verb uses the exact same format as all the Garmin GPS devices. So it's just easier to work with that sort of dump coming out. And so we were really just excited about this idea of being able to get video that was also linked to space as we as we went along it. What uh, Niklas Bernholt told us he did, uh, which we didn't get a chance to try, was actually have two of these on two speakers talking to each other while walking. So you would have the perspective of each member of the conversational pair, but you'd also be able to track where they were at each time. So to me, that's like a, just a really exciting kind of video to use uh, because we can get all of this extra information at, at one time.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. So finally, what advice would you give to someone who wants to do field work in the lower Fungam region?
1: Yeah, well, unfortunately the advice right now is wait for wait for it to become safe. But actually there are places nearby in the so-called francophone parts of Cameroon that are quite li- culturally and linguistically similar where you can go. So let's just think about that. Let's just assume it's it's feasible. Um I mean you you could work with internally displaced people, but that brings up other kind that that would be a whole discussion in its own right and I think a worthwhile discussion for the field to have, but One of the most important things I learned by being in the field, like being there and also working with an anthropologist, Paulo DiCarlo, was how much about my perception of the way the work should be structured and the way to analyze and the way to sort of go about interacting with people had been shaped by sort of language ideologies I had picked up from, I mean, I was born in the U.S. most of my life there and actually I spent If I wasn't, I spent some years in Germany, but either way, these are very linguistically similar spaces ideologically. This idea that people have a single mother tongue, right, that they have one language that's their language, that we define communities sort of ethno-linguistically, that ethnicity and language come together. And so I came in with this idea that, you know, language documentation is about working on a language and you find a speaker of the language and you run the language through its paces with a speaker. And that if you go into a village, that village has a language of that village. And um, what I learned by interacting, and this is one of these things that happened when I first did survey work in Lower Fungo, this other question lit up in my mind is how are these people maintaining all of these languages in this small space? Like, what are they doing? And then working with the anthropologists, we realized that if we were to document just the languages and ignore people's multilingualism, we actually would have not captured the area at all. We would have produced this um, documentary record that would have been highly colonial, because it was the colonial masters, the colonialists, who came in and said, "Oh, you're a tribe. Tribes have languages. Who's your chief?" And locally, people were always multilingual. They had multiple affiliations, but that didn't fit well with the colonial mindset, where everybody had to, ha- everyone had to be a miniature nation state, right? So we might be you know, England, and you all, well, you're not as civilized as we are, but you're a miniature England on some level. And once we civilize you, you will, that was the sort of mindset. So everybody had to be partitioned. Not only were you partitioning Africa into zones of, of, of uh, political control, you had to partition inside each place. Everybody had to be, you know, a, a folk or a person or whatever. And so So this may not sound like the usual kind of advice. It's not bring a good microphone, but you should do that, right? So think about your microphones, right? And all that sort of stuff. Think about redundancy because something will go wrong. But anyone can say this. I would actually say, read the local ethnographies if you can find them. Get to understand the people because your linguistic training doesn't push you in that direction. Your linguistic training gets you to understand what a phoneme is and what past tense is and all of these kinds of things and what a passive um construction is but it doesn't really help you understand the sort of lived experiences of the people you're working with and we really need to know if you're going to do good linguistic work how do they understand their relationship to language and, and culture and so almost anywhere in Cameroon you really need to understand that People are multilingual. They've been multilingual for a long time, for millennia, and this is a key part of their linguistic lives. And that uh, I first learned this little trick or this little problem from Frederica Lupka, uh, who was at at, at SOAS for some time now in, in Helsinki. If you ask like an African, what's your mother tongue? They don't hear first language. They hear the language of my mother. And that actually the closest analog to their mother tongue is more likely to be the language of their father in most of these societies. But they just don't even see the world that way, right? It's just a very uh, a different space and that you need to understand that because otherwise you're going to go in and you're going to say to a speaker or a language user, like, well, what, what's your language? Well, they're going to offer their first language, but you're going to miss out on the fact that there's actually five more languages they speak, right? Um and that sometimes they even speak a language that's not cataloged because they don't think you care about it. It's not a secret. They just won't even think to, to answer it. So, um, and I, I think in broad strokes, that advice applies to other parts of the world. The, the, the way the ideology you bring with you and the local ideology are all going to have their um, spaces, they're going to interact in different ways. And so you need to understand that. But um, I I understand how it actually led me astray in Cameroon early on, and it will lead you astray in a different way somewhere else. But I, I would just think, like, try to find out just what you can about how how the sociolinguistic situation works before you get there and watch it while you're there and just try to, try to learn that. And then let your project... Uh, Be willing to change your project goals a little bit in response to to what you see.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really good advice. Thank you, Jeff. Um, Okay. So thank you again so much for coming on Field Notes. Uh, Where can our listeners learn more about your work?
1: I think um, because I have a a general, probably just best to look at web pages. I have a general personal webpage. If you type Jeff Good Linguistics um, into Google, it should find me. Um, But there's also a a website we have specific to the project hosted at Buffalo. Um, I can send you that link. We use this um, acronym for the project sort of to unify the work we're doing. It's PAMCOM. That's K-P-A-A-M hyphen C-A-M. It's kind of a mouthful, but if you type that in, It's Google searchable. Nothing else looks anything like it. Uh, It's key pluridisciplinary advances in African multilingualism hyphen Cameroon. I know it's a mouthful, but, you know, acronyms are helpful. It's part of the local culture to have one. And um, the key pluridisciplinary part sounds a little funny, but we actually wanted the acronym to start with a labial velar because it's very typical of that part of the world and we wanted to signal that was our, our way of signaling like we didn't want the acronym to be a good acronym for an english speaker or a french speaker we wanted the acronym to look look like it was a, an african project and so we thought hey let's use uh, we could if we had a good gb words instead of kp words maybe we could have gone that way but i think it was pierpaolo de carlo Well, someone came up with key pluridisciplinary as opposed to multidisciplinary. And that gave us our um, our labial velar. So K-P-A-A-M hyphen C-A-M. And I don't think anyone else has tried to occupy that string yet. So it should be pretty safe for this project. Awesome.
0: Yeah, I'll link, I'll link that as well in the show notes so people can find it.
1: But that's good. So that's probably where to find out. We try to put our papers and updates there and always happy for people to just uh, inquire about it, ask me questions. If someone else in the project can answer better than me, I'm happy to refer them to, to that person.
0: Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff.
1: Thank you. It was great to have this opportunity to just, um, I guess, share these experiences. I hope they're helpful to some of the listeners.
0: You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui-Billens, with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Eville Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LingFieldNotes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.